Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists and experts during this extended COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zoom casting with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston. Now in effectively year two, 2021, this COVID pandemic continues and the crisis uh, of capitalism with it. We are here in our second show in 2021 and we are picking up a very timely theme, namely the, the beginning of the Biden administration. Our topic, our question today is building back with Biden, question mark, new deal or same old deal. We are joined with three terrific guests, two of which will kick off our discussion and then a very, very appropriate respondent. We will have Doug Henwood, who I'm sure is no stranger to many of you, Doug Henwood, a commentator and writer for Jacobin Magazine, longtime contributor to The Nation Magazine. Um, you may have seen him on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah in recent weeks, commenting on the GameStop uh, kerfuffle, and also an author and uh, founder of Behind the News and Left Business Observer. Doug, it's so great to have you back on Shelter and Solidarity. Oh, thanks for having me. Great. Uh, joining Doug next in the lineup will be Brian Snyder, an old friend of mine. I'm so pleased to have just recently connect, reconnected with professor of economics at Bentley University, but uh, as well as a contributor to Dollars and Cents magazine. Brian, mm -hmm. it is great to have you with us. A pleasure. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, and joining us a little bit later in the conversation, though not too much later, as we hope to get to discussion soon, is another guest who needs no introduction, but I'll give a very brief one. Uh, Medea Benjamin, who is the co-founder of, of the activist and peace, feminist and peace organization Code Pink, among other organizations, an author of, it seems like, close to a dozen books and, mm. a, and a stellar activist intellectual, particularly, but not only on issues of international justice and peace uh, and anti-war uh, movements. We'll be bringing her in soon. Medea, it's so great to have you, and I'm glad I can say, back on Shelter and Solidarity for the second time. Great to be with you. Thank you. Terrific. We're going to dive right in here. Um, mm. Glad to have, we have a very robust audience uh, tonight, and I want to just remind everyone, as always on Shelter and Solidarity, though we do present some great expert activist testimony and perspective, our goal is to ignite and to continue a community conversation. So we do hope that you will keep a list of your own questions and comments, uh, in whether you want to put them in the chat box, message me as the moderator or one of our producers, and we will work you into the conversation as soon as possible. We're definitely around the half an hour, 45 minutes. Mark, we're, we're going to hope to go to discussion today. But in the meantime, please do keep yourself muted. Uh, as always here on Zoom, if you are heard, you will be seen and who knows what we'll see. So please, <laughs> let's give our give our audience, give our guests a few minutes and then you'll be joining us shortly and hitting them with whatever thoughtful questions you can come up with. Mm -hmm. All right, um, Doug and Brian, we'll start with you. Uh, as promised, I wanted to give you a few minutes at the start of the show to unfurl your perspective on this moment we are in with respect mm -hmm. to this Biden administration, the Biden regime. Um, what are the openings, opportunities, or dangers that you see this new administration posing for the people, the planet, for the left in particular? Um, I'll let you frame things any way that you like, but we'll start with Doug. I mean, how, how do things look to you, Doug? Uh, you know, whether based on uh, Biden's history, on the early indications of this administration, the, the overall kind of objective situation, what do you think we should be looking for? What do you see as the kind of, uh, I guess you could say, the upside and the downside of this new administration uh, taking office uh, this, this past month? 
I just want to open with a brief, and I, I, I regret that I was not able to uh, outfit myself as a cat, but uh, <laughs> I, I just didn't get the technology down in time. Um, but uh, I just say to start with, take a look, quick look at the economic landscape. And this is the weirdest economy one could ever imagine. Uh, it's very, very bifurcated um, yep. between uh, the upper classes and everyone else. So we've regained about a little over half the jobs that were lost between February and April. Uh, but progress has stalled in the last few months. We're still getting about three quarters of a million people a week filing for unemployment insurance, which is down significantly from uh, last uh, spring, but still um, extraordinarily high by historical standards. Uh, the unemployment rate is down, but still also high by historical standards and not fully capturing uh, the people who are just dropped out of the, the labor market. Uh, but there's also a big class difference. So we've seen most of the people in the upper income uh, categories either continuing to work or going back to work, whereas people in the lower brackets uh, are not doing anywhere near as well. Um, so we're actually seeing this weird phenomenon of wages rising um, in the midst of this crisis, but it's mainly because uh, the, uh, the people at the bottom are not showing up in the statistics. So it looks like wages are doing well, but in fact, uh, for an awful lot of people, they're barely getting by. Uh, the Census Bureau says something like 30 million people are having trouble um, getting food on the table. Um, it's still very, very high. Um, you know, in normal times, it's only 20 million, so, uh, which is, you know, pretty disgraceful, but that's, that's uh, life in America. Um, so in this, uh, and then, of course, we've seen the financial markets go absolutely crazy, the stock market reaching new records, um, just every possible side of a bubble you could imagine, um, completely um, detached from the economic reality that a lot of people are living. So it's, it's been an economy that's been pretty good to people who are uh, you know, above median or in the top third of the population and not so good for everyone else. Now, into this comes the Biden administration, which I have to say is, as they say on Wall Street, coming in above expectations, at least on the economic side. I suspect um, Medea will have more to say about the foreign policy side, which is, I imagine, going to be much more a typical, um, uh, what used to be a Cold War Democrat, but whatever the modern version of that we want to call, um, is still bellicose, still very much, and actually trying to restore a lot of the, uh, the damage that Trump did to the American empire. But um, uh, on the economic side, you know, it's not so bad. So we have, uh, let me refer to my cheat sheet here because I can't remember all these names here. Uh, Brian Deese, who's the director of the National Economic Council, uh, comes out of uh, the Obama White House, but also worked at BlackRock as their head of sustainable investing. Yep. So mm -hmm. he kind of represents the liberal wing of Wall Street, which is... Yep. Growing in importance these days. Um, you know, the BlackRock, uh, run by Larry Fink, he's been talking about climate, uh, but also Larry Fink finds the early Biden uh, moves on climate a little too extreme. Larry wants to move a little slower. So that's what we're seeing. I think this kind of liberal wing of Wall Street has a large yeah. presence. Uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, very serious person. I mean, I have a lot of respect mm -hmm. for her. Um, and she's saying a lot of the right things. She said in her opening, a welcome letter um, to the staff of Treasury um, that uh, she wanted to make uh, systemic racism and climate change uh, at the core of Treasury policy. This is not an income inequality. This is not the way normal Treasury secretaries speak. Um, but she's also an extremely competent person coming after the idiocies of the Trump years. It's just nice to know somebody who's mm -hmm. a pretty decent human being who knows what yeah. she's doing. It's really nice, uh, nice change. Uh, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, is a labor economist, black woman, uh, not usu your usual kind of, you know, Wall Street functionary. Uh, 
Two of the other members, uh, the other two members of the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Council of Economic Advisors, I personally know. Uh, uh, well, yes, we were uh, Irpy com comrades with Jared yeah, Bernstein. Absolutely. I served in a steering committee with Jared. Mm -hmm. I used to row around the lake uh, at Irpy Camp with Heather. Um, yep. For so those who don't know, I'm just sorry, just for those who don't know, ERPI is the Union for Radical Political Economy, actually where yeah. I met Brian years ago in the wake of the Occupy movement. So Yeah, that's where I met Brian too years ago. Yeah. We used to hang out together. But you know, yep, these are sure. not just, you know, they're not liberal Wall Street, they're the left of that. So these exactly. are very fine people. Uh, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Rohit Chopra, I have a mm -hmm. friend who works there, uh, who says that he's pretty good. And a lot of this, the staff yeah. is very excited. Uh, the, uh, the, the chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, who has not yet been confirmed, but uh, Wall Street is not very fond of this choice. He's a bit uh, stricter a regulator than, than anyone expected. Uh, now, of course, you know, so liberal Wall Street is not going to come, come maybe better than conservative Wall Street, but it's not going to be, you know, revolutionary. But there's some good people here. And the early executive orders are pretty good. So on these kinds of domestic policy issues and on climate, I got to say it's better than I expected. And the enthusiasm uh, for a, a significantly large um, rescue package or whatever we want to call it, um, uh, almost $2 trillion is remarkable. And it looks yeah. like they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the Obama administration, which was too little and giving up on it too early. So, uh, you know, it could be a lot worse. Maybe it's just the fact that, you know, after four years of Trump, uh, it's that sensation you get when you stop beating your head against a wall. It feels good for a little while, but then you realize you've been beating your head against the wall and <laughs> maybe it's not so good after all. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe you know expectations have been beaten down so much, but again, I think I, my um, my summary phrase would be: it could be a lot worse. Yeah, thanks for that, Doug. I mean, it is difficult to subtract the subjective dimension coming out of the Trump years, right? I mean, just the uh, the mental strain of dealing with the daily tweets and whatnot. But uh, I appreciate that. That really covered a lot in just a few minutes there. I'd like to come back at some point, maybe to get your thoughts on what makes liberal Wall Street liberal, uh, or where you know. Um, but first, let's bring in Brian. And um, Brian, I mean, we spoke a bit on Tuesday in preparation mm -hmm. for the show, and, and you indicated a number of directions you're ready to speak to. I mean, I, I, the, the openness of the first question to Doug is certainly available yeah. to you. But I thought one thing you spoke about on Tuesday when we were preparing mm -hmm. was this issue of like how this administration compares or is likely to to kind of compare ultimately mm -hmm. to the Obama administration. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's an inevitable that mm -hmm. that you know Biden be having been the vice president or Obama, a lot of comparisons uh, for better or for worse going on there. I'm kind of curious, what stands out to you in the in this in this initial period in terms of Biden's position, Biden and his cabinet positioning, and with respect to the Obama administration that came before. Um, and uh, and also another question. I mean, yeah, I mean, so why don't we start there? And then I also am interested in your thoughts on where the real power in this administration mm -hmm. is. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, there's it can be a difference between uh, naming someone to a position and that person actually having the power to make and exactly. being authorized to make decisions. So could you lead us into a little bit? Of, maybe that's two questions for you. How do you see this administration relationship to the Obama administration? And, and how do you see it? You know, where do you see the, po the power actually kind of accumulating in this administration? Uh, in terms of its, you know, the complex dynamics of it. Okay, I, I really appreciate hearing uh, Doug's guarded optimism about this because I've been kind of pouring over. I actually have like a, a cheat sheet put out by the uh, American Prospect as far as who's who. It's sort of like a fantasy football rotisserie of cabinet officials and everyone. So you get to kind of handicap who's doing what. And the first thing I did was I went immediately back to who were Clintonites back in the day and who are Obama administration folks, and I kind of work through it. 
there is a surprisingly large amount of people who are not part of the Obama administration. And most importantly, too, is that the ones who were part of the Obama administration, we, we, we can deal with. Uh, Janet Yellen, it's, it's nice to have a competent person and a person that can actually, when they're looking at uh, money and uh, finance, actually brings up questions of labor. Imagine that. Okay. Uh, so it's nice to have occasional adults. Now, we are in a different situation. 2008, remember, uh, boom, the economy blows up. And so we have a situation where Wall Street's leading this. Where we are now is a significantly different place. Okay, we had a bubble that blew up, uh, you know, and then Occupy Wall Street as a, as a reaction to it. We had four years of a regime that at best were vandals, at worst were, <laughs> let's, I just like to see things burn, okay? And the states are, were set up in such a, you know, is set up in such a way that it's not to actually do the function of the state, it's essentially to, uh, to set it up to fail. You have benign neglect and active neglect uh, in various departments per se. I mean, it really is a bit of a horror show. Now, the economy was already getting particularly funky. Remember that someone decided that it they could. So far. Don't worry, I'll bring cookies or something. That they could win a trade war. Uh, oops. And then already things were fairly weak. We had all sorts of problems with, with uh, income distribution, et cetera. But this is a fairly weak economy. And then we get poleaxed with the plague. The plague hits. I can remember back in March, um, I was talking with the, Hong, the Economics Club of Hong Kong, some of my former students, and dealing with the, the effects, the global effects of this particular pandemic. And the global effects was basically, remember, we have this globalized neoliberal regime, Washington consensus, whatever you want to call it. But it was predicated on the free flow of labor and capital and commodities globally. The sucker seized up. And that because of the integration supply chain at all, that unsticking this, even when it, we can get a hold of the, uh, get on top of this pandemic eventually, is not an easy proposition. Plus also you have a major realignment from a fully globalized economy to a more balkanized economy dealing with spheres of influence. It's, as they say, it's a new game when it comes to the global economy. So the economy is already getting weird. Now remember, going into this election too, is that the politics are gonna be different. Now, I think that you could use the word, you know, hope. Remember that thing from Obama? It's hope, it's a sort of naivete of, yay, you know, hey, we're all together and yay, this is good. Maybe we can really, we've got hope. Now, I don't know if you guys caught it, but do you remember Pandora's box? They open it and all the plagues go out and everything. And the only thing left in the bottom of the box is hope. If people had read their Greek mythology better, they'd realize the problem with that, okay? You've already unleashed the plagues. This is a different situation. We are in a situation where we have to deal with a major pandemic. First, because even if we do the traditional tools, uh, as far as stimulus, et cetera, which we will address going forward here today. Um, but until we, we get on top of this thing, really, basically, we're just spinning our wheels. That that plague is going to be connected 
with our economic policy. It's going to be connected with our healthcare policy, obviously. What's that thing about the Chinese character? Chaos is also opportunity. Yes. As well as almost every aspect of trying to put the state back together so it at least functions at a minimum level. Um, tremendous amount of potential here, but there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. And also, we're dealing with a political situation that is, you know, fragmented. We've never had a, a you know, a full-blown insurrection attempt mm -hmm. with a hostile, absolutely hostile insurrectionist party. We have now the um, the Senate. The two senators from Georgia were a gift. And I'll have to give it, this is the difference between Obama and Biden, is that from early on, they realized that they're not going to be reaching across the aisle because what's across the aisle is almost entirely toxic. Obama well, was too, far too late to the game to realize that these people are not here to help you. They are not your friends. In fact, they're going to try and make you a one-term president. Well, I think that's a very important point, Brian. Let me uh, pick up from that. I want to bring Doug back into the conversation on this. I mean, a lot there. Um, but one is, I mean, Doug, what is your read on how the infighting, if to use a euphemism, uh, within the Republican Party um, affects the lay of the land for the Democratic Party and particularly for you know the left wing of the Democratic Party or those to the left of the Democratic Party that want to drag them left? Uh, I mean, some I think many some of us expected, especially before the the Senate became a, a more up for grabs situation. That you know, that, you know were, there were very cynical kind of takes, and I mean, maybe correctly cynical, suggesting right that uh, well, the Democrats love it, right? When and Wall Street loves it when you know you have a split government and and so forth. So whatever progressiveness may be coming out of the House is going to get stopped before it even gets to the White House. Um, what, what's your sense of this? The current lay of the land politically and what it means for possibilities and, and particularly for the possibility of, of, of left movements pushing um, and pulling this administration to, to do some of the things that the people on the planet need. You are muted. I had muted myself uh, to be a good, good citizen, but here I am again. Um, yeah, there are a couple of things here. One is that I think the left really needs to take some credit uh, for um, the good things the Biden administration is doing. It's not the Democratic Party, um, and it's not the broader body politic of what it was, you know, in 2008, 2009. Um, there is a very substantial uh, progressive force within the Democratic Party. We have people in the House, particularly the squad, um, but also in state legislatures and city councils around the country who call themselves socialists. Uh, I'm sure some purists say they're not really socialists, but my God, you know, could you have imagined that 12 years ago that there'd be Close people enough. calling themselves socialists? Um, and um, yeah, and we've like scored a lot of um, uh, um, points. I mean, the, the, the Green New Deal is actually on the political radar and it's really, you know, and that's largely because the efforts of AOC, you know, we, uh, she's a phenomenal political presence. And uh, she, this proposal really changed our discourse. And of course, you know, it's really too much for the current power structure for sure, but the fact that we're even talking about this and it's really setting the agenda uh, against which everything else has to be measured is really a remarkable accomplishment. I think we should pat ourselves in the back because we don't really have much in the way of victories to show in the last several decades. Uh, the Republican Party is um, I just insane and toxic force. I mean, it's just, uh, it's filled with lunatics and vicious creatures. Um, and I think it really alienated a lot of people. 
Uh, of course, we have people like Joe Manchin in the Senate who are effectively you know, moderate Republicans. Uh, he might uh, prevent uh, any increase in the minimum wage, any serious increase in the minimum wage. Um, <laughs> the people of West Virginia desperately need a higher minimum wage, but Joe Manchin isn't on their side. Uh, but, you know, I think an awful lot of Democratic illusions about working with Republicans have been blown up by the behavior of the Republican Party. Uh, and it looked like when Biden had them in uh, for a chat a week or two ago, uh, it almost looked like he was trying to say, yeah, have we tried and it's just not working because they made it clear afterwards they're going to go for reconciliation to pass the relief bill mm -hmm. and not try to get uh, Republican votes and do it, uh, you know, without uh, uh, a more conventional way. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty remarkable job. Also, having Bernie Sanders as chair of the Senate Budget Committee, that's, you know, a very powerful position. And that makes a big difference as well. Uh, so the Republican Party seems very divided against itself. There are a few kind of sane um, people in it uh, who uh, actually believe in governance, but then there are just absolute raving lunatics and bigots. You know, what is it, a dozen people, uh, a, I think a dozen or so senators voted, voted against uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, for transportation secretary. You know, Pete Buttigieg has no particular expertise in transportation. You know, where they had like 12 buses in, in South Bend. Uh, he doesn't really know much about it. But on the other hand, the only reason they voted against him was not because of his lack of expertise in transportation, okay. it's just because he's gay. Yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, hopeless, um, irredeemable bigots and reactionaries of the worst sort. And I don't think the American public really is very fond of that. So how the Republican Party maintains its control uh, or its, its considerable power still is, is something to behold um, because you know, they, they, they hold on to uh, their power because of gerrymandering and voter suppression. Uh, and um, since they control what, like two thirds of the states now completely, uh, something like that, um, they're gonna get to uh, redraw the congressional districts when after the, pop, uh, after the Census Bureau um, you know, uh, releases the latest uh, 2020 census data. So that you know, they're gonna do their best to maintain um, their power that way, but it's quite clear that the only way they can stay in power is because the electoral college had slaveholders uh, heritage and um, because of gerrymandering and voter suppression. Uh, they are so visibly afraid of anything resembling democracy. Uh, and God knows you know, the Democratic Party is not uh, anything to uh, admire as uh, a model of democratic governance, but uh, you know, the opposition now is just so vile and so reactionary. Uh, and there's a chance that um, the Democrats can actually push through some half-decent legislation without them or over them, um, which is a good thing. Um, I, I didn't think that Biden was going to go for reconciliation. I thought he was going to try to go for, um, you know, getting some Republican votes for his program. But it seems like uh, they don't want to repeat the mistakes of Obama 2009, and they don't want to see a rerun of those midterm elections. You know, it's, it, it, as I said at the beginning, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, you wonder if it in ways Biden's lack of kind of charisma as a kind of co-optive potential uh, in the way that Obama kind of was so clearly able to kind of rally symbolic and, and rhetorical force. You know, it, to some degree, he doesn't, the, the, uh, uh, Biden, partly because of the pandemic, because of the Trump years, just doesn't seem to have the, and his own record, right, which is so glaringly offensive to so many folks on the left, it seemed, and even liberals, that it seems to be, uh, you know, he doesn't have that cover. I mean, it seems like um, there may be some vulnerability uh, there that whether they want to or not, they have to kind of give give some things at least to establish credibility right here out of the, out of the out of the gate. I like to, but I mean, when we look at the international situation, I do wonder, you know, how things appear differently. To what degree we see, you know, continuity and discontinuity between the Trump administration and, frankly, the just U.S. 
uh, imperial traditions here. Um, when we think about the international situation, I'd like to bring in Medea at this point. Medea, um, you know, how does the, the Biden administration, the Biden regime, uh, or, or if we put it a different way, you know, U.S. empire under uh, Biden uh, look similar or different from, from a kind of global perspective? Uh, you know, what's on your radar right now uh, in terms of things you are, you know, the positive potential you see or dangers you see looming um, and uh, opportunities for, for the left to intervene in a way that would, you know, minimize the danger and increase the, uh, the potential uh, positives. Well, uh, let me say from the, uh, the get-go that I think one of the problems in terms of foreign policy is the weakness of the anti-war movement. And it's because of that that we haven't had more gains uh, in the Biden uh, cabinet. Uh, I think Doug was talking about how um, there were less uh, positive things to say on the global front, and that's for sure. Most of the people are from the Obama years it's kind of a cabal of, uh, I would call them liberal interventionists, people like Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, who is way better than Mike Pompeo, uh, Jake <laughs> Sullivan, uh, and of course, Biden himself, who supported the Iraq war. And uh, Blinken is actually to the right of Biden because Blinken was in favor of the uh, US intervention in Libya. He was in favor of the surge in Afghanistan that Biden was not in favor of. Uh, some of the other picks, well, the Secretary of Defense is a general, which was a problem for many people because they thought there should be a civilian in charge of the military. But, you know, this is a guy who also, as soon as he got out of the military, what did he do? He ran and joined the Board of Raytheon. On the other hand, he is way better than uh, the person who was seen to be the, uh, the, the um, obvious pick, who was a Michelle Flournoy a real hawk, especially when it comes to China. And we were part of a strong movement that I think nixed the appointment of, of Michelle Flournoy and you know, maybe even stopped a, a, a war with China, who knows? Um, but that, that's good that we don't have her. Uh, CIA, we also helped nix the appointment of a, a torture apologist, Mike Morell, and actually got somebody quite good as head of the CIA, given that it's the CIA who is a veteran diplomat, William Burns, unfortunately, his boss, who is the head of all the 17 intelligence agencies, the director of national intelligence is April Haynes, who uh, was somebody who was called in the middle of the night under Obama to authorize drone strikes and uh, let CIA hackers who were uh, trying to stop the torture report from getting out, let them off the hook, redacted the torture report, so she's awful. Uh, and uh, then just to go to some of the policy issues, I think uh, some of the joining the international community is good. Uh, overall, um, the, the mindset is that from the Biden administration is that U.S. has to regain its position at the head of the table, uh, and somehow the U.S. has the right to be at the head of the table. On the positive side, rejoining the Paris climate agreement is a good thing. Rejoining the World Health Organization and other UN agencies is a good thing. Lifting the Muslim travel ban is good. Uh, renewing the START treaty with Russia, although they're very big on the Cold War with Russia is good. Uh, then we get to some of the important issues that Biden said he was going to um, uh, change, which is the US support for the Saudi war on Yemen. He just came out and said US was going to stop selling 
uh, offensive weapons to the Saudis, but leaves a big uh, question of what is the difference between offensive and defensive weapons. Uh, and when it comes to Iran, that's something we thought he was going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal right off the bat as some of the early executive orders, he's waited and waited and things are getting a little difficult uh, in terms of his um, people putting now putting forth the idea that uh, Iran has to uh, meet US conditions before the US goes back into a deal that it defaulted on. Uh, so that's disconcerting, although two of the people that he brought into his cabinet, um, Rob Malley as the Iran envoy and Wendy Sherman are both people who negotiated the Iran deal under Obama. So you think that would be good. Um, he hasn't made moves yet on Cuba sanctions, which have been so devastating under Trump. He said he's going to study the effects of them. And uh, of course, a lot of us are pushing that he does more than study them because people are dying in Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. Uh, I think he's going to stay in Iraq and Afghanistan for the entire uh, four years. I think he's going to up the Cold War with China, which is going to be a justification for uh, a uh, continuing the humongous Pentagon budget. And I think Congress will continue to be a big problem in terms of uh, stopping things like troop withdrawals and Pentagon uh, budget cuts that we are pushing for. Could I ask Medea a question? Go right ahead. Oh, do. Oh, do. Yeah, um, we, we heard a lot from Democrats about all the damage that Trump did to the multilateral structures of US power, notably NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, how do you, serious do you think um, that damage was? What is this, was it as real as some people say? And second, um, what can he do um, to repair it, if that's possible, or as the U.S. position in the world was sliding inexorably. Well, some of us might think that it's good that a lot of people and countries in the world don't see the U.S. as a global leader anymore, especially when we can't deal with the pandemic and we can't stop an insurrection in our capital, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's good that there is a more multipolar world forming uh, and that a lot of countries want to get away from the dollar as the only uh, form of international finance. Uh, on, and that Biden wanting to um, rejoin some of these international uh, agencies is good and is bad. He wants to strengthen NATO, which I think many of us would think um, uh, should be dissolved. And uh, in terms of supporting the European allies, uh, you would think that when it came to Iran, he would quickly have rejoined to show the Europeans that he wants to get back uh, dealing with Europe on these international issues. So I think um, he is trying to regain a place in the world of prominence when the world has changed. Medea, um, when you were last on the show, it was shortly before the election, we had a discussion about, you know, from a left perspective, you know, why this election was so crucial. And of course, one of the arguments that you and others made and have made um, was about that, un at least under even a Biden, it, this was after Bernie had dropped out of the race uh, when we had the, the interview, the discussion. And, and uh, you know, at least under a Biden, there's the possibility of pressure, right? That there's at least openness to uh, at least some commitment or at least some rhetorical commitment to listening to some of the, you know, constituents that uh, the the left cares about and is is invested in and maybe even have some have some power with, um, I mean I wanted to you know now that we're on the other side of that election uh, to ask you you know kind of how the ground looks in terms of that that kind of left 
whether it's anti-war or other kind of progressive pressure on this administration. I mean, you mentioned already in your, your comment the, that you felt that, that, that we or that you and groups you've been involved with have had some role in maybe nixing a couple of appointments. I, I wonder, I think I can imagine our, our listeners and viewers would be really interested in hearing a little more, you know, what you can say publicly. What, what is nixing, you know, um, you know a uh, potentially reactionary hawk uh, foreign policy uh, kind of advisor or, or diplomat look like? Uh, and also looking forward, I mean, what are the, the forms and, and venues in which you think uh, those of us committed to change beyond, you know, uh, you know the, the, the imperial norm, uh, what we should be looking at, where, where the pressure points are, uh, not only in this administration, but, but of course in the, in the system that it, that, it, that it presides over? Well, let me use Iran as an example because it's such a crucial one. And uh, we were uh, able to nick some of these worst um, appointees by a PR campaigns, getting articles out about how bad they were, uh, getting other people in the administration to speak out about them, not, not publicly, but privately. Um, but we also were able to stop um, the right from nixing Rob Malley as the envoy to Iran. Uh, he's hated by, the, by AIPAC, by Israel. He's said to be, quote, anti-Semitic because he's met with Hamas. Uh, he's hated by the right-wing Iranians because they say he doesn't care about human rights in Iran, etc. cetera. Uh, and despite a very strong campaign that they waged against him, uh, he was picked by Biden and that's a very positive thing. So there is somebody on the inside that we know that we've pushed for uh, that wants to see a deal done with Iran. On the other hand, uh, as I mentioned, we don't see the right kind of movement on this deal. So we see the forces that we're up against. Um, Biden, it's interesting around Israel, for example, because Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala Harris are very uh, close to Israel, yet Biden has not called Netanyahu in all this time where he's called all kinds of other leaders and Netanyahu is quite pissed about it. Uh, so that's an interesting development. And I think a lot of that is around the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the, the, the desire by uh, Biden to lessen the support for the Saudis, uh, to stop listening so closely to Israel, to go back into the Iran nuclear deal and to ease some of the conflicts uh, in the region. But it's, um, you know, there's a lot of division and I think we on the left can really push through our congressional representatives because why the heck aren't they speaking out on Iran? Uh, where are their voices? Why aren't they saying, come on, you know, get back into the deal. The bull is in your court, just re rejoin. Uh, I don't see any, we, we've been pressuring the squad. We don't see any of them responding uh, so I think our job would be to get some response from Congress to get out there uh, on this issue and say, rejoin the deal, period. Yeah, that raises so many interesting questions. I really appreciate you know, how much terrain is being mapped out here by, by, by our three guests. And I do want to also mention, though, in a few minutes, we'll be welcoming our live participants. We have over 50 of you, I think, between Zoom and Facebook. So if you do have a question or comment that you'd like to make, we ask you that you do keep it brief and clear, uh, you know, and uh, that you do indicate in the chat box in all caps uh, that you'd like to speak so we can make sure not to miss your 
your contribution. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, let's see. So, I mean, Medea, I mean, you raised the issue of the squad, which I thought, you know, might be an interesting issue for, for us to, to think about together, you know, in terms of one of those tactical leverage points. I mean, uh, Doug, maybe we could bring, bring you in here a, a little bit on this. I mean, I mean, there was, of course, a whole kerfuffle. I know what you were involved in on, uh, or, you know, you couldn't avoid on Facebook uh, regarding the force the vote question. I mean, without going into the weeds on that and what people think of, you know, a particular personalities, uh, particular uh, YouTube personalities tone or approach. I mean, what do, what do you see? And Brian, I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well. I mean, about leverage points, points of leverage, right? This thing the left needs to think more about, right? not only having the right ideas, the right moral critique or whatever a political critique, but what are the points of actual leverage either in the government or in society more broadly? I mean, what do you, th what do you think of this, the, the, the possible issue of leverage with the squad, uh, Doug, and, and how that could be related to how that maybe is operative already? I don't know in anything that we've seen or the way that it could be. Uh, and I'm here very cognizant of, of Medea's really flagging the the, the left's lagging on issues of foreign policy. I'm not asking you to speak to that right now, but just, you know, in what ways, what is the leverage you see, I mean, around the squad uh, and perhaps elsewhere, maybe not as visible uh, on social media or elsewhere, uh, where, where the left could have or does have some, some leverage to actually uh, verify some gains here, or at least resist some, some of the barbarities coming down the pike? Yeah, it's true that I don't think the, the squad uh, is uh, very attentive to foreign policy or not as much as they should be. Um, and um, that's unfortunate. Uh, AOC in particular is not, has been very disappointing on the Venezuela question, although she was good in Bolivia. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that controversy over the force to vote uh, with um, he who will not be named <clears throat> um, acted as if uh, the, um, the, the only obstacle between us and Medicare for all. And you know, that's not the problem. They're like, what? I guess their, their ranks have expanded somewhat with this recent election. They're now, what, maybe six um, or seven in the squad now, uh, not an all female cast anymore either. But still, you know, that's a very small uh, portion of a 435 member body, almost half of which is a Republican. Um, so, you know, the, the major obstacle, any kind of pro progressive legislation is not um, uh, whether AOC at all are pushing hard enough for it. It's the, uh, the corporate Democrats and the Repo entire Republican Party. And uh, what we need to do is um, get rid of some of the dead, deadwood uh, Democrats. And it's very interesting, uh, speaking of points of leverage, that this is repeating a pattern in previous election years, but I think it even more so. Uh, Chuck Schumer, now the leader of the Senate, um, was afraid of a primary challenge uh, from either AOC or someone, uh, uh, someone like her. And uh, he is actually acting more friendly towards, uh, towards the left, uh, being more expansive about uh, the stimulus package and for the, about the minimum wage and those sorts of domestic policies. You know, he's not, surely not going to change the U.S. relationship with Israel. That's not who Chuck Schumer is. But, you know, I think that that threat of a primary challenge um, actually did seem to um, make Chuck Schumer into a somewhat better politician. Um, so that, that's that's, I think, the, the points of leverage is threatening to challenge some of this deadwood in, uh, in, the, in uh, 2022 um, and uh, maybe get rid of them um, or at least scare them into being better. Um, that's where our, uh, that's where I think where our point of leverage is, uh, because, you know, having that, that squad in Congress, um, I can't, it's been, you know, decades since we had a group of people that impressive, that, um, that far left, um, and that popular and charismatic and effective. Um, 
And that really, you know, have changed our political discourse dramatically. And I think we should uh, certainly not uh, worship them or, um, you know, just defer to everything they say, but it's, it's an impressive force and they should certainly not be um, attacked as, as obstacles to doing good. It's, um, you know, Joe Manchin is more of a problem <laughs> right now than anyone else. Uh, although I don't know what we can do about Joe Manchin in a state that Trump won by 40 points. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate your your point about the you know the the, the limits of of kind of blaming your your allies for not being able to take power completely. Um, it's certainly, I mean, I think it's important, right? For I mean, I, in some ways, and I'll say his name, you know, Jimmy Dore, whatever, you know. But I appreciate the, the idea of challenging the progressives to try to put to to really own the power that they may have. But there is that danger of always falling out of a, you might say a comradely discourse into someone that mistakes a friend for an enemy. Um, and I think that is a challenge, especially in this social media environment that that consumes even in well-intended conversations. Brian, I'd like to ask you to speak to the leverage question, um, if you if you can. And then I think after that, we may we have uh, some people leveraging the uh, chat box to get in on this conversation as well. So, I mean, how do you see this question of leverage? And again, I mean, don't don't need to speak to this only in terms of government bureaucracy and the points of pressure there. But uh, you know, where do you see the the left, the existing movements we have right now, potentially having some leverage on and around this uh, this new administration. I think you're muted. Let's let's make sure you can unmute there. I don't know if you were muted by a, a there producer. we go. There you go. Let's try that again. Yeah, obviously the uh, the uh, the squad is delightful because what they do is they move the the discourse. Because if not, it's going to be, you know, completely controlled by the powers that be, per se. They're giving a lot of fresh air to ideas that, that need to be done. Um, an example of this, you can talk, one of the, the elephant in the room right now that we really need to deal with, not only is the pandemic and the economic thing, but in order to deal with the pandemic and our economic situation, we got to deal with healthcare. And the question is, how do you do it, et cetera? And the interesting thing, and I'll bring up leverage, is that right now, the most, to say, effective, the most efficacious way of attempting to bring in a, a serious system of public health is one of using a reconciliation process of being able to do Medicare for all. I think it was uh, uh, Bernie Sanders was suggesting that everyone signs up, or as I'm automatically signed up for Medicare per se, you sign this. And it's interesting because if you look at the history of the National Health Service in England, it was literally the Blitz, this London Blitz that gave them the national health care system, national health. We have, an, we have a Blitz. And I was looking at the numbers here. I actually told up my calculator was doing the math. And the amount of people that died in the Blitz was uh, something about, a, what is it, 100 something like 14,000, here it is. 41,000 people were killed in the London Blitz and 139,000. Now I read something in the Lancet today that talked about the 450,000 COVID deaths in the United States. And then looking at Trump's policies and the fact that there was no uh, public health system that could deal with it, they 40% of those 450,000 deaths could have been averted if Trump had actually behaved like the group of seven, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, or the UK. So we take 40% 40, 40 of 450,000 deaths, that's 180,000 necessary deaths. Well, if the Blitz in England was 40,000 dead, 
And that basically created the healthcare system in England. Uh, Charles Webster, the official historian of NHS, wrote in 2002, it was the Luftwaffe that achieved in months what had defeated politicians and planners for at least two decades. What's the expression from Machiavelli that never leave a good crisis un, uh, unexploited? This is an example that we, since we've been having the powers that be uh, undermine and block about every t attempt at public health, it's time to be able to link going forward the, our economic policy with our health policy. And if we can do this through a reconciliation, we do it. And uh, this needs to be done because we can't really do anything as far as economics until we're able to be able to, to get this thing taken care of. I mean, before we go to the, the audience, I would like to come back to Doug on this. I mean, Doug, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but if, if my memory doesn't fail me, I mean, I, I, you, I, I'm guessing, I'm just saying, I'll guess that you were one of the folks back in the 90s that was, was articulating particular, um, you know, uh, outrage at the, or in, in disappointment or worse with the Clinton, with the, you know, Bill Clinton administration, partly because there was, in fact, at that point in time, actual significant support in the capitalist class for some version of national health care, right? And that the, the, the Clintons, you know, and, and the Democrats kind of bungled and effed that up so much that even the kind of, in other words, that, that there are parts of the ruling class or the capitalist class that realize, right, that, that when you're spending more the, uh, on health care than, you know, on private health care and pharmaceuticals than in, in health care, health insurance plans than you are on the steel or labor that goes into a car, that's not even in the interest of the, of the classes kind of, uh, profitability of its commodities. Uh, I mean, I, I want to. This gives you a chance to circle back to that question about the liberal kind of wing of Wall Street. I mean, do do you feel like? I mean, is are they liberal simply because of you know because of their kind of ideological commitments, or do you feel like that is there a, a wing of even the financial capitalist class that um, that sees like the existential crisis that makes the connection that in a way Brian was just making that that in some sense. That if even if you don't give a shit about people dying, but if you just want them to buy stuff and sustain your profit margins and you know take out your credit card debt and maybe have a chance of paying it back or at least getting the government to later, that you still need some kind of Keynesian or public health intervention in the economy. I just wonder, I mean, what your read is on on the kind of basis for that. I mean, is it simply that these, you know, th these Democrats are open to pressure because of, you know, the, the situation we're in, or is it that, that there is some recognition even in high places that, that the, the crises are so existential that, that there needs to be a return to certain out of fashion ideas, you know, call them Keynesian or, or whatever, whatever you prefer. I think, you know, one thing that's very important to remember, and this is something that uh, I learned from Fran Piven, really, who really brought it home to me, is that, uh, if you have Democrats in office, they're at least open to popular pressure in ways that Republicans are certainly not open to popular pressure. So, um, you know, anything that decent that Biden does is probably more out of the result of popular pressure than anything that's coming out of the goodness of his heart. Now, I think there are people in Wall Street and in the corporate establishment who are really worried about inequality threatening social stability at this point. I think there is some concern about that. So even a couple of years ago, uh, we saw the business roundtable. Uh, which is you know, one of the pinnacle formations of, of American capital, saying, okay, maybe this focus on shareholder power has been overdone. We need to think about other people other than shareholders, which is, it was pretty weak, but you know, for the business roundtable, it was a big deal. 
uh, we see the growing role of ESG, environmental and social governance issues uh, on, on among some of the big institutional money on Wall Street. Um, again, you know, they're concerned about the environment and social stability, uh, but nothing too radical. Uh, they don't want to do anything that's going to threaten their profit margins. Um, you know, they, they do seem to be worried about inequality. Uh, we see this now coming throughout the Federal Reserve, um, which... I kind of say, you know, uh, given the rot of so many American institutions, for all the problems of the Federal Reserve as a, as a class institution, at least it's still run by intelligent, competent people, uh, which is, you can say, for very much of the rest of the American establishment. Um, and there, there, there's a lot of uh, concern there about climate. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco held a conference, conference on climate last year. Uh, some of the other central banks around the world seem to be concerned about climate risk to financial stability. Um, so, you know, we're seeing a dawning of, of, of consciousness in that area. But again, they don't want to do anything that's to, to going to threaten um, their class power. So um, Leo Panitch, who died a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. a good friend of mine, great uh, political thinker. Uh, he and Sam Gindin interviewed the CEO of GM uh, sometime in the 90s. I can't remember exactly what year it was. And um, he said, um, they said to the CEO of GM, you know, you have a lot of operations in Canada. You know that you save money. You're spending so much money health insurance in the U.S. And that was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. They're spending even more now. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so why don't you, you know, want to adopt the, uh, the Canadian system here? And um, the CEO of GM said, we don't want to create another entitlement. Now, he had real class consciousness uh, and uh, giving an inch on something like that, uh, the capitalist class correctly sees that if you give something to the proles, they're going to want more. You want them constantly ill at ease, constantly, you know, nervous about um, their, their, their position in life. Um, so I, I think they're, they're stuck in this contradiction where they're concerned about uh, social stability as a result of polarization and growing impoverishment. I just saw a, a paper uh, that showed that um, you know, we, we hear a lot about spatial inequality, the growth, growth of um, geographic um, polarization. But, you know, the, the standard idea is just the rich coasts and the busted heartland. But in fact, if you look at it at a county level, poverty rates have been equalizing across the country. Um, what's different is that we have these little enclaves where the, the affluent have been sheltering themselves. Uh, and then the rest of the country is having trouble getting by. So, you know, there, there are these like geographical tensions, there are these social tensions, this growing polarization, you know, this, and I think the capitalists, it's dawning on the capitalists or the, the, the more enlightened ones, not the petty bourgeois ones who are like the, the root of a lot of the Republican party, but you know, the big ones know that something needs to be done, but you know, they're afraid of giving too much because that would threaten their rule. So they're in this difficult situation where they want to give just the right amount to keep things from falling apart, but not too much where, um, you know, the pros may want their scalps. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative, which I'm teaching in a class at UMass Boston. And he overhears, you know, a, a master basically saying, you know, if you give them an inch, they'll take an L. <laughs> which I think is still, you know, a contradiction that, that restrains and, and frustrates the, the rulers. Uh, we get to find a way to take advantage of that. Okay, let's let's bring in some of the the masses here. The uh, the the, the uh, I'm not going to characterize you all any beyond that. Uh, we have a number of folks that want to ask questions. Some of them have indicated they'd like me to ask it, and some that they want to ask themselves. I'm going to go to three folks that I believe can speak for themselves here. Uh, Michael Passerini, we'd like to start with you. I understand you have a, a question for Medea. 
Um, then we'll go to well, maybe we can take three at a time if people can keep their questions relatively brief. Um, we'll go to we'll go to Linda, one of the co-producers of Shelter and Solidarity, and then we will bring in Paul Horowitz. Uh, Michael. Uh, hi. Um, uh, I have a uh, question for you, Medea. There's a viewpoint I've come to in the last couple of years regarding uh, the Iran deal, which is quite uh, provocative, but I, I think it's reasonable. Uh, initially, I was very supportive of the Iran deal, and I was right up until I think uh, maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And the reason I've changed my mind, and I, I just want your opinion on this, the reason I've changed my mind is because I just think the Iran deal is so blatantly unfair uh, to Iran. You know, I'm no supporter of nuclear weapons or nuclear deterrence, but the fact that we're making all these demands of Iran and uh, uh, basically forcing them not to uh, de develop their own nuclear deterrent, which is pretty much the main reason we're, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the main reason we're doing it is, is you know, to ensure that Israel has a monopoly on a, a nuclear deterrence in the Middle East. I, I believe that uh, Iran should leave the deal. And, uh, you know, I think honestly, you know, uh, people need to come to the, just, you know, come, just face the truth that or if, even if Iran developed nuclear weapons, it would be like North Korea. They're going to develop them they're going to, you know, probably sit in a warehouse for 20 years and then they'll be destroyed after there's some arms agreement like the New START Treaty. I mean, that's my view. So I wondered what your response was, would be to that. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Michael. Let's take a couple more and then, you know, and we can just keep track of those, Medea. There's lots to respond to there. Uh, Linda. Okay. Hi. Um, so I guess this question is for all three of our guests. I'm wondering uh, how you think education will fare under the Biden administration, particularly given the uh, big campaign promises that he and uh, Kamala Harris made about student loan forgiveness and also free public and community colleges for middle-class households. Great, important question, dear to many of us educators on the call, and as well as those mm -hmm. who uh, have folks in, in or will be in college sometime. Uh, and then last but not least for now, uh, we'll have Paul Horowitz. Paul, are you there? Yes, thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask a question. I'll start you know, to pose it to Medea, but to um, all the panelists in a way. So, you know, on foreign policy, you know, there's tough to, very important things to talk about with regard to Iran or Yemen, Palestine, Cuba, China, et cetera. But beyond you know, the, all those particulars, um, we're kind of in a new world. And I was wondering how we on the left might articulate the underlying principles that should guide our foreign policy, both political and economic. And some are kind of obvious, like non-intervention, especially opposition to military intervention. And in a vague way, you know, multilateralism, though, of course, you know, it's fine in the abstract, but you know, other governments are also in the pockets of local or multinational capital. So multilateralism also has its limits. But what about like human rights as a concept? Is that oh, is that real or is that always a prop to excuse American hegemony and you know justify American intervention? What about trade? What should we be saying about trade? What are the what would constitute fair ground rules for a global economy? among nations that are, that are at such different levels of economic development. Just sort of 
open up this conversation about foreign policy, not just about Biden, but you know, in this moment, but sort of slightly longer term. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Paul. It's it's easy when we're dealing with the actually existing regime to limit our you know kind of discussion to things we think are possible and not what really ought to be. Uh, so I appreciate that. So let's go, um, Medea. I think at least two of those questions were were kind of loaded with foreign policy references. Uh, the question about the Iran, uh, the way in which the Iran uh, nuclear deal looks different when you remember that Israel is the only power in the Middle East with nuclear weapons right now that we know of, and we do know it. Uh, and then also this question that Paul has raised about uh, foreign policy issues. And then after that, maybe we'll bring in everyone for the, the, the education and, and debt question. Medea? Uh, so on the issue of the Iran nuclear deal, um, I've been to Iran several times in recent years, and uh, I find that they're the more uh, progressive, the more secular Iranians really want the nuclear deal because they want decent relations with the US. They want the sanctions lifted. They think the sanctions strengthen the hardliners, the right, the militarists inside Iran. Uh, it, it, it breeds a lot of corruption. And uh, so they're really anxious and they were delighted when uh, Obama uh, helped to sign the Iran deal in, in 2015. Uh, so my sense is that it's it's good for the Iranian people. It's good for politics uh, in Iran, and the hardliners who want to uh, just uh, not negotiate with the West um, are not the kind of people who um, would support more uh, liberal social values that I think most of us would be in favor of. Uh, in terms, uh, oh, and and a, a good piece that you might I'll put in the chat. Um, that came out in The Guardian just a few days ago was Bishop Tutu from South Africa calling out the Biden administration to say, you should do what the uh, you are legally responsible for doing, uh, which is to call out and recognize Israel's uh, nuclear weapons and stop supporting economically Israel because it is a proliferator. It is the proliferator of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. Um, just great to see it out there. And then in terms of you know, what should be the overall view, I mean, I like to uh, say that it's not the US at the head of the table, it's a round table where we are discussing these issues as one nation among many. Uh, and then certainly to US unilateral interventions and military interventions for sure. Uh, and then to political meddling. And you know, we have somebody at the head of AID, Samantha Power, who has, uh, who championed a very um, uh, dangerous uh, viewpoint of humanitarian interventionism that, that we have to stop. Uh, and an end to economic blackmail. And I would say that, um, the way the sanctions have been used as a form of coercion has really been a form of economic blackmail. And I think um, Doug can speak more directly to what kind of trade policies we should have. Thanks, Medea. Uh, Doug, would you like to step into that? And of course, we can uh, bridge into the, uh, the question about education, uh, debt, public uh, funding of, of universities and colleges as well. Doug? Well, yeah, actually, it's been a long time since I thought about trade issues. <laughs> it like, takes me back to a different decade. Um, so, yeah, I really am not quite sure what to say about that. Um, so much of what uh, is uh, negotiated under uh, trade is actually all about protecting the investment rights of multinational corporations and uh, not really much about trade. Um, you know, I would say kind of related to all this is the relationship with China. Uh, which is partly framed as a trade issue, but in fact is uh, mostly about uh, its 
growing role as a rival to the United States as a political and economic power. China is no longer, you know, the, the cheap workshop of the world. They're developing a lot of their own technology and becoming increasingly rival um, to uh, Silicon Valley, which is of uh, great concern. And I think we're going to see um, Biden, uh, you know, lay off Trump's visceral racism. I mean, it's so clear that Trump just just hates Chinese people and hates Latin Americans. I mean, it's just obvious the way he, was, he, the way he said the words. But I think the, the, the rivalry with China, um, which is partly framed as a trade issue, is really um, you know, just uh, the, the growth of uh, China as a rival to the United States economically and politically. At the same time, the United States is eroding and looking kind of pathetic and weak in a lot of cases. Um, uh, I just wanted to say on the nuclear question, sometimes, and this is a perverse point of view, but I sometimes think every country should have nuclear weapons. Um, you know, um, why, why, should we, why should any country be denied that? And the fact that is that uh, the United States would have uh, destroyed North Korea had North Korea not had nuclear weapons. The United States destroyed North Korea in the early 50s, dropped what, there were millions of people killed, uh, which most Americans have no idea of. And this is why, um, you know, uh, the, the North Koreans are very paranoid about the U.S. They have long memories and are justifiably, justifiably afraid of what the United States will do to them because it happened once before. Um, so, you know, if if you have nuclear weapons, the United States can't push you around. So I think, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, saying that Iran should have nuclear weapons because then the United States couldn't push them around. Or Israel, which has, you know, anywhere between, what, 100 and 400 nuclear weapons, depending upon whose estimates you listen to. So it's... Um, can, I, can I just intervene to say the solution is not more nuclear weapons. The solution <laughs> is getting rid of nuclear weapons. And that's yeah, why... Yeah, I think that's really... A, ...treaty at the UN that we should be supporting. Yeah, I think that seems like once they're out, of, the cat is out of the bag, it's kind of hard to imagine putting it back in. But that's that's a long conversation. Um, on the, I, I just, you know, the, the, the phrase human rights makes me think think of uh, Samuel Moyne's um, argument that human rights came to the fore as a political issue um, as the world was getting more and more unequal. Uh, and it was something that appealed to a lot of liberals because it made them seem like they had a conscience. But you know, all the, the, the material um, uh, fates of the world were polarizing massively as the, the uh, income distribution around the world got more unequal uh, in the neoliberal era, um, China being a great exception to that. But um, yeah, so this, this human rights discourse should be looked at rather skeptically, um, just because it seems like um, a high-minded way of, of dismissing any attempt uh, towards uh, uh, questioning the, the global distribution of resources. On the education question, um, well, certainly um, what, uh, what's coming is better than the world of Betsy DeVos. Um, she was just one of the more horrible members of the, the Trump administration, just an absolutely horrific political force uh, more broadly. Her family is a terrible political force, and she was a terrible force in education. So it's nice to be delivered to that. I'm expecting we'll see probably some moves toward uh, student um, debt forgiveness, but not what some people would like. I think we'll probably see moves towards making um, higher education more affordable, but certainly not you know, the kind of uh, free uh, education that Bernie Sanders was talking about. Uh, in the campaign. You know, I think uh, education should be free from uh, kindergarten or preschool rather to uh, PhD or beyond, but um, that's not on the, uh, that's not on, you know, the serious people's agenda at this point. Um, but it's certainly an improvement over uh, like everything else. This is going to be improvement over what, what went before, but it's certainly going to be short of uh, what we'd like in our dreams. Okay. Well said, Doug. Um, and I, I want to make a comment on the education point as someone who works and struggles on that front quite often. But Brian, uh, would you like to add something? I know the, both those 
those, those three questions got some quite a bit of response there. But would you like to add anything to to that round? Okay, quick on quick in on uh, trade is that we're not going back to the previous trade regime that ship that cargo ship has sailed and sunk. Okay, so what you're seeing now is kind of attempting to refit something looking like a global supply chain, but it's going to be on different rules. Look for regional trading blocks in particular. South America in particular, America's sore increasing its power per se, but also with China and Asia, China, South Asia, Africa at all, uh, China will be asserting itself a little bit better as such. But we're not going back to that. And yeah, it is a geopolitical thing as per se. And uh, the, the, uh, it's, this is gonna be an interesting proposition, very touch and go for a while. Uh, for education, Obviously, the, the low-hanging fruit right now for people that are hurting, particularly people that are carrying student debt, is what is it? You can't get blood from a stone. You have to acknowledge the reality that a large amount of people are stressed as far as their incomes, whether it's employment uh, at all. And paying money in student loans and taking that out of circulation is madness, absolute madness when it comes to attempting to stabilize economy at a time of pandemic. Now, with that said, the student loan system is madness, even at a time with, with blue skies and unicorns, et cetera. It's insane. So I think the idea is that it's one of those things. Remember that, that biblical concept of a jubilee? There was a reason for that, because when you have this accumulated debt, an entire parts of the population can't get out of that debt it's time for a jubilee so Absolutely. i don't care don't care what you're gonna call it but just respect the reality of it okay yeah i mean you're reminding me brian of another late comrade we've lost uh in recent months or years time is such a blur but david graber right in his book oh, death yeah. the first five thousand years Right. I mean, one of my big yeah. takeaways from that book was that he said that there had never been a society yeah. in, in human history, to his knowledge, that had had that that had a situation where the poor owed the owed the rich so much <laughs> without yeah. one without one of three yeah. things then occurring, either mm -hmm. a jubilee, mm -hmm. although it's better if you put that one last, it's more exciting, but exactly. um, uh, return to actual slavery. Mm -hmm. Right or a total social meltdown. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. So torches and pitchforks. Right. So, so um, I mean, yeah. It seems to me. I mean, they're not talking about. Yeah, they're, they're still talking no. about having the federal government pay back those loans. The point yeah. I wanted to make on education, just to be on a soapbox mm -hmm. for one moment, is that yeah. we need to talk about affordability and push for affordability and right. you know and and freezing and lowering tuition. But we need to keep our eye on educational quality. Right. There are a lot of folks that talk the language of affordability when it comes to public university or college, but what they're really talking about is turning our research universities, uh, which are able to give working class people at least a shot at the quality of a liberal arts education and deep dive into knowledge and, and research skills and, and, and exposure to the, 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 you know, the front line of thought in our society and turn them into more like community colleges where you have 30 people in a classroom for first year writing and there's no ability or it's very, very difficult, right, to actually achieve the, the the depth of inquiry and you know it, it more and more in lines and nothing against community colleges which are incredible places with incredible people but against all odds um you know that we need to keep an eye on not only i would just argue not only the affordability and uh, question at the level of tuition but the full public funding that can allow us to get beyond choosing between affordability and quality right which for public in public higher ed uh sorry to get on my soapbox for a moment there um 
but um, so much on the table here, we, including a few more questions in the chat box. Uh, I believe we have Kira, one of our co-producers of Shelter and Solidarity. Let's take three at a time as well. I believe we have Bill Moyer, whose question was overlooked earlier. Sorry about that, Bill. We're asking everyone to keep their questions or comments as brief as possible without losing your particular verve. And also I had one other, oh, I can't forget Joe Nevins, a frequent uh, commentator and guest on Shelter and Solidarity. We'll go to Joe third. Uh, first, Akira. All right, thank you, Joe. So listening to another one of my favorite podcasts besides uh, Behind the News and all, um, I was listening to in an interview with Patrick Bond, who someone who I think many of us already know and uh, admire. And he was talking about, with regards to uh, Biden's plan, something called an eco a global ecological debt. How can, how can we be pushing the Biden plans, the Thrive Agenda and the Green New Deal to be addressing this ecological debt? Great here, taking that debt concept in another direction. Mm -hmm. uh, really interesting. Bill, Bill Moyer, and then Joe. Yeah, building on that. And of course, I would love to get all obsessed about and talk about and preach about uh, railroads as the path towards a, our new society, but I'm going to resist that and, um, and ask Doug a question about, and the other panelists. Hi, Medea. Um, we recently hosted a series on modern monetary theory. And I tell you, I, I really love the idea that you can balance an economy, that you balance a society. I, that part of it really appeals to me. I don't know where I stand on the rest of the concepts and I can't honestly uh, claim to, that I fully understand it. Um, but I do observe something that does concern me and that's the possibility that we're setting up uh, obsessions and infighting within the left against folks like public banking or move the money efforts who want to defund Pentagon and other programs with folks who say, no, we don't have to do that. We just need to fund everything. Um, so I just a little bit on how can we navigate this emergent uh, theory and its potential and uh, keep it from dividing us as we uh, try to apply our values to the um, society that is emerging. Thank you very much, Chuck. Okay, thanks, Bill. And then we go to Joe Nevins for the third question. Thanks, Joe. And thanks to all our guests for a really uh, great discussion. It's been really helpful. My question is, um, if I heard Brian correctly, um, I heard him say something to the effect that we can't deal with the economy until we deal with healthcare. What I'm wondering is if we can ever deal with the economy, and by what I mean by that is achieving some sort of significant degree of economic justice and security for the, for the masses without addressing the massive amount of US military spending. In that regard, I'm wondering what openings, if any of the guests see for putting the Pentagon on a diet in the name of creating a more socioeconomically just and secure United States. And it seems like people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are making more noise about this than they have in the past. And now there's a defense spending reduction caucus in the house, small, but it's new. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, Medea, perhaps you're the one best person to speak to this, like, but I let, you know, all of you, what is this, is this meaningful? You know, this noise that seems new vis-a-vis -vis Pentagon's, you know, it's, it's sort of like the ultimate sacred cow. And finally, we, it seems like we see it on the margins, some willingness to challenge that sacred cow. 
Okay, uh, we have a lot here on the uh, table. Um, I'm not gonna try to summarize each of the questions. We had a question about the ecological debt, um, a, a broader question about uh, the state of the left and the kind of either or versus yes and kind of approach. And then this, this uh, question Joe just articulated. Um, let's just go in the order uh, that we began. Uh, Doug, Brian, and Medea. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say as a footnote to the Jubilee, uh, Jubilee question, I believe Pat Robertson, when he ran for president in 1988, suggested that we should have a Jubilee year. And okay, okay. Uh, this attracted an outrage editorial from the Wall Street Journal, but mm -hmm. uh, kind of weird with that, considering the source of that, but you know, I guess it's biblical and inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, the issue of an ecological debt, I think it's a very important question. Patrick's an old friend of mine, and um, I've been talking to him about these sorts of things for years. Um, my friend Thomas Anasiu wrote a good bit of the, um, uh, the Sanders uh, ecological plan, his version of the Green New Deal during the campaign, and a very large uh, component to that, which didn't get very much attention, uh, was that uh, the U.S. and other rich countries owe a lot of money to the poor countries of the world um, because you know we kind of fill the air with carbon, and now we're asking them to tighten their belts, carbon-wise, um, uh, and uh, it's kind of ecological reparations um, uh, as a way. Uh, you know, paying the rich countries of the world, paying the poor, poor countries of the world uh, to uh, reduce their carbon emissions and develop a, a clean economy. Um, so I think any kind of Green New Deal would have to be um, global in scope, not can't be just a, a domestic US obsession, but would also have to have that uh, international dimension of uh, you know, something like reparations or subsidies for the poorer countries of the world to uh, uh, come up with um, you know, clean economies. Um, on uh, and Bill Moria's question, for, I haven't forgotten you, Bill. I'm going to get back to you on the railroad question, but I just have a, a couple of deadlines the last few days, and I haven't been able to to, to get to it. Um, I wrote a long piece for Jacobin uh, last year, uh, 8,500 words on what I think is wrong with modern monetary theory. So anybody who wants to know what I think about modern monetary theory, look mm -hmm. that up. Um, I would just say, in the context of this discussion, that uh, it is a way of evading a whole lot of complicated distributional issues and class conflict and things we can just print the money or, or create money out of thin air with keystrokes and we don't have to raise taxes. I understand the appeal of it, but it's a way that doesn't challenge the, um, the dominant uh, discursive uh, 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 a dominant discourse around uh, fiscal politics that uh, has prevailed since the Reagan years. Everyone is so afraid to raise taxes. And I'm afraid to say that um, if we want a civilized welfare state, we're not be able to fund it just by taxing the rich or cutting the Pentagon budget. Cutting the Pentagon budget would be a great favor to humanity. It's a disgraceful, grotesque works yeah. of waste of resources uh, and you know, a threat to life on a vast scale. But two or 3% of GDP could be taken out of that. And if we wanted the Scandinavian style welfare state, we need 15 to 20% more of GDP. So mm -hmm. this is a small down payment on it. You know, taxing the rich could maybe give us another 5%, but we'd still have to raise taxes on um, the upper middle class and some of the middle class. Um, and that's really just a fiscal reality that a lot of people on the left don't want to face. Um, so yeah, I'm all for cutting the military budget deeply, but for humane reasons, not because it's going to be a, a big piggy bank, we could uh, finance a whole lot of other social programs with it. Really interesting, Doug, I appreciate that. Uh, Brian, let's go to you next. Let's dive in here. Okay, on the ecological debt thing, and appreciate Patrick Bond's material too. Uh, connect that to climate. We've run out of 
we used to kick the can down the road as this is lovely, but we can't do this now because this, 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 this. It's always the excuse you can't do. We've run out of road. We've run out of road dealing with climate. We've run out of road as far as species. We've run out of road in a finite world through expansion, et cetera. Um, we're in a situation that it is compelling and uh, it has to be dealt with now. I mean, we can kind of turn your nose up at John Kerry as far as climate change, but I think that he, uh, he's one guy who uh, might actually be, uh, be taking this quite seriously, but we need to keep the pressure on and, uh, and, and think about this thing truly globally because the amount of species being lost, the destruction of rainforest at all is bad. You're talking collapse of fisheries, collapse of everything. <laughs> this is really, really bad. This is stuff I don't like to talk with about my kids because I don't want to give them nightmares. Also, when I do lectures with senior uh, uh, facilities, I don't want to talk about this because that gives them nightmares too. All right. Debt and MMT. It's amazing that the responsible folks at, at the Treasury and at the Federal Reserve Bank realize that there's times like these you run deficits. And the first people that start, you know, saying, well, we got to be responsible for this, whether we cut it back, et cetera, austerians, whether they, they be you know, very, very hostile but, or even within the thing. This is not the time to start worrying about um, your deficits, per se, especially in a time like this. OK, and looking at the, the, the Biden plan right now, you got a one point nine uh, trillion dollar program. That's still not enough. <laughs> OK. You got, what is it, uh, 750 for COVID containment and vaccination, 800 um, billion directly to family, 600 billion directly to families, 400 billion to aid for vulnerable households and aid to businesses. Well, folks, this is a start. It's not enough. Most immediately, the GDP is taking a dip and there's some regional economies as far as states that are getting in. You're gonna need a substantial amount of block grants and the block grants is because the tax revenues of states and municipalities are getting clobbered. We bring it, we're talking about education, okay? You know, canceling debt is, you know, uh, student loan, that's low hanging fruit, but we also have to make sure that, that at elementary and all the way up, that the funding is there. When you start having uh, states, especially with balanced budget amendments, they just, they find that they're gonna have to start cutting. You need to have a system of block grants out there until we're out of the woods as far as the pandemic. I don't see that right now. That better be coming. That should be the other shoe that's going to be dropping as such. I like yeah. railroads. I really like railroads. Now, the thing is, is Joe Biden likes railroads. Now, some, some people may growl at the name Musk, but I like a good hyperloop here and there. Uh, I teach um, urban and regional and transportation economics, et cetera, and it makes sense as far as uh, where we're going you know, as far as uh, growth, to have a integrated system of public transportation that works. Unfortunately, at the time of pandemic, uh, we have a perverse effect where the very uh, public transportation we have can't afford to pay for itself because no one's riding it. Okay, so we have a situation that you have to think about block grants. How are you going to take existing infrastructure and make sure it doesn't belly up because we have no riders? And then going forward, where do we want to get? We got a trillion dollars plus also of infrastructure that hasn't been touched. Roads, bridges, et cetera. We can green the green it and we can we can build it and we can rebuild it. What is it? Rebuilding it better? Okay, this can happen, but we can't do it really as far as boots on the ground. We can plan it now. 
but boots on the ground is going to happen when we start getting the this under control. Cut the Pentagon. I, I, I have a very simple proposition, and that is just audit the damn thing. If you can actually tell me where that money goes and what pockets, where, this is a step in the right direction. But I think way back, politicians is a great thing. Oh, yeah, we'll audit the Pentagon. Do it. And then ask yourself a simple question. How safe do you feel? This is a massive budget. How safe is this? You have to yeah. really rethink, you know, what a defense system is. Because what you're doing is you're building, you're spending billions and billions of dollars for a war that we're not fighting and an adversary that's different than what we traditionally have. Yeah, you have I to rethink this entirely. Yeah, Brian, I think that's a great closing point there. I mean, if uh, as apparently Biden's planning to mobilize a whopping thousand soldiers or something to administer the vaccine. But if there's ever been, a, a, I don't know that there's ever been a bigger living example of how the so-called defense budget is not actually prepared to defend the people against the actual threats. I don't know. And if something, if, if, the, if an anti-militarism, anti-war spending movement can't be built out of that, I, you know, on that, I, I don't know uh, what will. I mean, of course, apparently, you know, the, the killing of millions of people abroad doesn't seem to stick in the American memory for long outside of uh, the activist movement. Uh, we have three questions that have been posed. Two are from folks who've asked me to pose them, and one is from one of our producers, uh, Mark Soderstrom. Uh, I'm going to quickly. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, Medea. I, I jumped in and then I forgot. Go to you. My bad. Excuse me. No, sorry. I just want to say that um, thank you, Joe, for for asking about what movement is happening, and it's it's very exciting actually. And I put some links in the chat. Uh, there is a uh, for the first time last year, we actually had an amendment calling for a 10% cut in the Pentagon. We used to, if you know, we got 10 people in Congress, that would be great. This time we got 93, which is important. Um, and we had Barbara Lee introduce a, a bill that she didn't push, but it was important symbolically to say, uh, cut the Pentagon in half, take a cut $350 billion. Um, so there, and there is this Pentagon budget reduction caucus uh, and on next Tuesday, we're going to have a meeting, an online meeting. At, I, I put that in the chat, too, with the two co-chairs of that caucus, Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan, to talk about how, uh, precisely how we can build that. And, uh, and uh, you mentioned that, that Elizabeth Warren has actually been one of the, the people during the campaign that was very specific on this and said, cut the overseas contingency uh, budget, which is now $174 billion. It's a slush fund for war. Uh, that would be an easy cut, cut the space force, cut the bases overseas, bases at home, uh, the over a trillion dollars for the next 30 years for modernizing nuclear weapons. Um, so there's lots of things to cut. And I put a guide to cutting uh, that would come up to over $500 billion uh, that we at Cook Pink have come up with. I also added that into the chat. So thank you. Thanks for that, Midia. And sorry again for, for jumping the gun there. Uh, just eager to get to our other. Uh, Can I ask Midia how many people are yeah. in that uh, caucus? Well, 
Well, it's actually a secretive caucus. It's so weird. They haven't, there's 17 people in it so far, but they haven't come out. You can't find it online. You can't find what it stands for, except it will stand for the 10% cut. Um, but we have been pushing them to really make a big deal of this, uh, of this caucus. And that's why we have the call on Tuesday. All right, really interesting stuff here. Uh, we had two questions, which I think can be put pretty briefly. Uh, one from Brittany in the chat box, who, who is in a place that, uh, she, she wants to have me ask it. Um, what about housing policy? I mean, we're on the verge of a housing crisis. I mean, there's been a various forms of housing crises we've been living with for quite some time, but with uh, you know evictions, uh, you know, rent coming due and eviction moratoriums up in the air, and you know, and certainly uh, temporary at best. Uh, what about Biden and the prospects for housing? Um, housing justice, housing housing stability for folks. Uh, a question from um, co-producer Tim. Um, what about the possibility of Port, uh, statehood for Puerto Rico or for DC? I know one of the things that's come out of uh, this, this, this Trump, uh, these Trump years has been an increased consciousness about the kind of reactionary nature of, and the kind of historically racist nature, really uh, of an enslavocrat nature of the electoral college and the ways in which these inequalities are written right into our constitution. What about uh, getting Puerto Rico or DC statehood and, and how that might change the equation? And the third question is from Mark Soderstrom, who will ask it himself. Thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation and, and spanning so much material. Uh, you know, We're looking at the necessity of reorganizing trade globally, the necessity of addressing change, the necessity of beginning to address the pandemic, which is more and more likely not going to go away entirely, even with a vaccine, we're facing an endemic change. Um, in, the, in all of these, uh, fundamentally reorganize, and I'm wondering what you think the future of work and labor is going to be looking like with these factors. I mean, how can we go back to work? And I'd also be interested to know your opinions are, are there going to be really fundamental differences between Biden, the low hanging flute is Trump, of course, but between Biden and Obama? Uh, is Biden going to approach these issues and work issues differently than Obama did in his time in office? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for a wonderful evening. Thanks, Mark. Let's go. Um... Medea, let's go to you first on, on, on these uh, questions. Let's go reverse order here. And then uh, Medea, Brian, Doug. Well, I'll just take on the one of uh, DC statehood because it's something near and dear to me living in DC. And uh, just as we're having this tonight, there is a town hall with uh, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton uh, to talk about how to push DC statehood for real uh, during this time. Her bill has a huge support. I mean, it's got like a... 200 and uh, I think 230 um, Congress people and 39 in the Senate. Of course, they're all Democrats. Um, but I think this is the year to really push for DC statehood. And um, I'm very excited about the possibilities. It's great. Brian? Uh, I agree. Um, DC statehood is a low hanging fruit. It, it's one of those. Uh, it's the time has come. And if you look at the numbers and you look at some other states like Wyoming, uh, I mean, taxation without representation, what's more American than that? Uh, we'll deal with that. Housing crisis, uh, this is going to blow up. It's going to blow up already because what you saw was a sort of a secular movement 
um, since the, the 2008 crisis, the uh, big housing bubble blows up. Was it settles? What happens is that, you know, once burned, twice shy, you don't go into owning, you go into renting. So what you have is a housing stock, which was blow, blew up because of cheap money and a lot of building, et cetera. And then you have corporate interests that are now getting into the landlord business, the slumlord business. And what's happened is that now you've got a lot of people who can't pay those rents with a very aggressive uh, landlords uh, uh, demanding said rents. This is going to blow. And, and the, also the thing now, you have a situation where people need to have stable residences to deal with a pandemic. And you have inc- in approaching homelessness at a scale you haven't seen since the, the Great Depression in the 30s. You know, this is like Dust Bowl kind of shit we're going to be talking about. You go to West Coast, you go to L.A., you go to the areas around there, you take a look at the situation there. And the rents are coming due. And if there is no relief to keep people in their homes, this is a problem. You try dealing with this with this pandemic when people are homeless, ah, a disaster. So hopefully we have a secretary of housing that doesn't nap for four years and uh, we can move this forward. But this too, put the money where the mouth is because this is gonna be really important that people can shelter in place without being evicted. Um, the other thing, work going forward, I saw something today, uh, look up the Guardian today, about in Silicon Valley, in that particular area, work is now fundamentally changed because of pandemic at all. We're talking about three-day weeks, but most of it's telecommuting. So what you see here is that the high-end skilled will be lessening its moving toward you know, commuting to the CBD per se, to maybe three days a week. The rest is going to be telecommuting. But people farther down the food chain, the precariat at all, are still going to be required to expose themselves uh, to the pandemic uh, and have to uh, have to have to work accordingly. Work is fragmented, and the traditional jobs are that died a little while ago, but it's only catching up to it. The income distribution that's pulling apart is because now we have a, an entire generation of people that there really is no gainful employment for. Service sector employment is really problematic, and this is the direction they're heading in. So this is a crisis that is is also revealing itself going forward. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Doug, um, I, I saw a comment in the uh, um, the chat that economics is not a science, which uh, I'd agree with, but it puts me in mind of a comment from Joan Robinson, the great economist. Uh, who should have gotten the Nobel, but didn't. Uh, she said that uh, economics likes to think of itself as the hardest of the social sciences, but next to uh, physics, it's like astrology, <laughs> which may be an insult to astrology, actually. Um, but you know, I think uh, the scientific pretensions of economics need to be taken with many grains of salt. Uh, I just want to make a clarification that uh, when I was saying about modern monetary theory earlier, I'm not worried about deficits or taxes now. Uh, in a, uh, in, in an emergency like this, you don't think twice. You just run deficit and print, print money if necessary. But I'm thinking about if, if if we have a return to more normal times, then that's when we need to start thinking about how we're going to finance a more civilized uh, uh, state. Uh, on the housing question, I really know nothing about Marsha Fudge, the designate for um, HUD. Um, a problem is that real estate is a big democratic constituency, business constituency. So uh, there will be limits on um, things that uh, that uh, Biden administration can propose. It depends on you know the pressure that comes from from activists and uh, members of Congress or friends in Congress. Um, 
but it's it's going to be a problematic area. And yes, Brian's right about the the stresses that the, you know people falling behind on rent, the threat of evictions, which are somewhat in suspension because of various uh, eviction moratoria. Um, although landlords are ignoring a lot of those, but still, it's it's keeping a lid on the crisis. But uh, should those expire, there's going to be an awful lot of uh, people. Um, uh, behind on rent with massive arrears and it's going to i don't know how we're going to settle uh, fix this problem it's very very difficult um on um, the issue of work um you know all this talk of robots replacing everyone i really think that's overdone we've been hearing that for decades and the the robots haven't taken over yet um uh, and the, the work from home question i really wonder you know everybody's saying this is permanent I'm not quite convinced that this kind of work from home thing is going to be, at least for you know the knowledge worker class, going to be a permanent innovation. Um, there's an awful lot of reasons why people gathered in offices, um, having social relationships are really important to being um, productive. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of waste of time and annoying things that go on in offices. But on the other hand, you know the, the kinds of social relationships that people develop in the workplace are very important to um, uh, you know being productive uh, and that I not, the whole work from home arrangement is sort of running on the fumes of those previous ex, previously existing arrangements, but those are gonna get, um, you know, the fumes will run out. And I'm, I'm not sure that uh, this, this belief that uh, people can be permanently dispersed um, out of, of um, offices and cities. You know, the reason that cities exist is that they are great economic engines to bring people together. Um, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that the virtual can replace that. Um, um, finally, on the DC and Puerto Rico statehood questions, um, I, I know this is a very controversial issue in Puerto Rico, so I really don't want to weigh in on it. But um, I think statehood for both of these jurisdictions are a real red line to the Republican Party. Um, they would be impossible for them to take, imagine uh, taking, it, it's impossible to imagine them taking uh, two more Democratic senators or former Demo four more Democratic senators. Um, it would really um, uh, weaken um, Republican uh, strength in the Senate. And they're, you know, it, since it probably would require a substantial bit of Republican approval to get through, um, it seems it's hard to imagine they'll ever agree to it. There's that question, but also the racism. Uh, the, the, you know, yep. the, um, they do not like. Black, uh, DC is full of black people and Puerto Rico is full of Puerto Ricans and Republicans are not very fond of either um, group of people. So it's hard to imagine them welcoming these jurisdictions um, uh, as two new stars in the American flag. Really interesting. And uh, I see Medea responding in the uh, in the chat box on the question of the political viability of the DC statehood. I actually, uh, our producers had mentioned a week ago, we would actually like to do a show on the DC statehood question, perhaps at some point, including getting into some of the, the detailed politics of this. Um, it seems important. I don't know. Medea, do you want to speak to that right out loud? I know those of us who are live are able to see your comment, but do you want to speak to that, the question of uh, the politics yeah. of the DC statehood? Well, I know that the DC statehood movement was really upset with Obama when in the first two years he did not push that. And now is the time to push it when there's uh, uh, democratic control in both houses. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of margin does it need? Does it need two third margin or could they block it with a filibuster? I think it'd be really hard to get it through the Senate at this point. Well, that, yeah, that goes to the whole filibuster issue, but that's what you know folks are, are, are pushing for. So as we are just cracked over the 8.30 line. We do like to try to wrap these shows up around 90 minutes. Um, sometimes we go a bit longer. And um, I wanted to make a brief comment and then put a final question to our, to our great uh, panel that has been leading this discussion. 
and, and the question I'd like to ask you is um, about where you see, just kind of bringing us back to ourselves and where we're at and our organizations and movements and, and affinity groups and all that stuff, um, you know, the people side, you know, what's your evaluation and assessment of where our movements are at right now relative to where they need to be to force or create the kind of change that we, that we want to see, you know, that, uh, that, uh, you know, that what things that may not be quite possible, what's the state of our movements and what can people who are on this call, who are watching the show, you know, kind of do right now, what would you maybe bump up on the priority list? There's no shortage of things to be done, but what would you offer folks by way of advice or uh, by way of uh, flagging issues or opportunities that you see as particularly relevant. One that I want to mention uh, before giving you a moment to think um, is, you know, this question. I mean, I, I think we should do a show on like how are production chains and work relations, go, you know, going to be transformed coming out of this COVID crisis and, and nationally, locally, internationally, and getting deep into this is something I think many of you, all of you could contribute to. But one thing I was thinking in my head about, you know, is this COVID crisis in the United States perhaps changing potentially the politics of taxation? I mean, is, I mean, Doug, you opened the show, you know, you refused to kind of just dive into the Biden administration first. You talked about the economy and this, this radical polarization you mentioned and the, the kind of the way you can have wage gains in one sector, but actually kind of a growing number of even uncounted unemployed folks Brian, you've alluded to like a whole generation and sectors of folks for whom there is no the kind of idea of a steady full-time job seems like a fantasy. I mean, is it possible that this COVID, I mean, it certainly seems possible, but how likely do you think it is that the uh, this COVID crisis can in fact create new terms for uh, the notion of solidarity and make a kind of politics of progressive taxation uh, more possible? I mean, Doug, as you point out, it's not enough to just go after, you know, the super rich and 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 the Pentagon as you put it, to kind of address the social welfare state we'd like to have, perhaps, um, is, you know, how do you see this, co I'd be curious to hear you say, you don't have to speak to this now, but, you know, how the COVID crisis may be affecting uh, the politics of, or the potential politics of, of progressive taxation. But I'm not asking you to speak to that unless you want to. I would like to ask you, however, to speak to, you know, your assessment of the movement and maybe uh, what you think people could be or should be uh, doing right now to, to help build that movement to where it needs to be. Uh, Doug, can I go to you first? And then yeah, we'll sure. Um, uh, I just looked it up. It requires a majority vote in both houses to admit a new state, but uh, the filibuster is always the problem. So that would be the nut to crack. Um, who knows if that what's going to happen with that? Um, but uh, you know, the uh, as I said when this crisis first hit us, that um, the COVID crisis was really like a cruise missile aimed at the heart of so many fissures in American society income, polarization, um, geographical polarization, the, the de decline of state capacity, our ridiculous healthcare finance system, and not just healthcare, um, you know, in the sense of going to the doctor, but also the public health system um, is just uh, a total disaster. How hospitals are located in the wrong places, tending to the wrong kinds of clients. Um, the absolute erosion of the CDC as an institution and uh, similar you know, bodies in the states, um, also public health uh, um, departments in states and cities have been eroded uh, very badly. So all these decades of austerity uh, in the humane side of the state have really taken a toll. So you know, this crisis revealed all these things, um, the intense social polarization and fraying of the social fabric in, in the United States. So I thought that it was a perfect time 
to propose a radically social democratic agenda, a big you know, Green New Deal with both the climate side and the redistributionist side, you know, investing in a, um, a green infrastructure um, and uh, um, not, not just building airports and roads like the old way of doing things, but you know, a, a new way of doing things with clean energy, clean transportation, clean manufacturing. Um, it's perfect opportunity. That, and you know, that moment, you know, we've had some economic recovery, but there's still an awful lot, uh, a long way to go. And all these structural problems have not been addressed at all. So in many ways, the, the politics of the present moment are really amenable to the kind of agenda that would please uh, most of the people um, on this call. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the movements, you know, I'm in DSA, I'm a pretty enthusiastic member of DSA, uh, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. Um, especially at the local level. You know, we're doing a lot of great work in New York City and uh, New York State, electing people to state legislatures. We're going to probably have some people in the city council in New York City next year. So a lot of good stuff. The, the, the state of the movements going on right now is the most encouraging um, it's been um, in decades and decades. And the fact that uh, we can talk about socialism in polite company is just the most remarkable development that, uh, you know, in, in modern times. So that's very good. I think uh, what's missing uh, is a point that Medea made earlier that there's just no anti-war movement to speak of. There's really little um, sense of challenging US imperialism from the inside. And that's, you know, the biggest gift we could give to the rest of the world is having, you know, the US take its boot off people's necks. And um, we're not really pushing in that area. We're doing very encouraging things in the domestic side, but uh, really there's not a whole lot going on in the international side. So I think that's the real deficiency. And we have, you know, people have to be a little more selfless with that. We have, you know, for, for most Americans, what our military does doesn't really matter to them. And we need to actually, you know, develop some um, empathy for the, the people at the other end of our rifles. Yeah, Doug, thank you so much for that. I mean, you make two many great points very quickly, uh, but one of them is, you know, expanding the, the the range of what can be spoken in public and and making like changing the the kind of center of gravity of the conversation, making socialism a term that can be used, that that matters, right? That that that, that shifting the terms of the debate, which the left has done in many ways, um, is is a substantial contribution. But but also, let me raise this question of the limitations of the the left in terms of its the foreign policy aspect. And um, I mean, we have this incredible anti-police brutality movement. Or you just mentioned, you know, take the boot off the neck, and I can't help but think of George Floyd and the knee on the neck. You know, I mean, what what to what degree can we you know, can this anti-police violence movement become an anti-military you know, military violence movement? Uh, I mean, it seems like there's, it's logically just a couple, you know, it's, it's just a step or two down the road, but it seems organizationally we have some work to be done. Uh, enough for me. Let's go to Medea. No, let me just make two yeah, quick yeah, points about sure, that. First of all, sure. according yeah. to Gallup, 10% of American adults participated in the Black Lives Matter demonstration last summer. That's yeah. a remarkable, remarkable yeah. number. Um, so that's just really moving to me, inspiring. Yeah. Um, and something like 60% of the people arrested at the Capitol were military veterans. Um, so there's some point to be made about the US military's um, activities returning to bite us with the violence that uh, the institution creates and perpetrates. Yeah, I mean, it makes the, the organizing of anti-war veterans, you know, that group Iraq veterans against the war and others. I mean, I think that's so important um, to break down that potential danger. Thank you, Doug. Uh, let's go to Brian and we'll, and we'll close with media. Okay. Um, a lot of what Doug said is absolutely spot on as such. Uh, I'm take you back to 1968 in Paris, uh, Danny the Red. 
when asked, you know, what are you supposed to do is be reasonable, demand the impossible. And what we need to do, what our role here is, is to demand the impossible. We're the ones that are going to be pushing these folks. Um, today, Nancy Pelosi, $15 minimum wage. She's all in on the 15. I'm very, <laughs> you think that would have happened a few years back? No. Okay. It's remarkable. Uh, these, this is the moment. So what we need to do is we need to keep the pressure on. Um, the the uh, the aid package you're talking two thousand or fourteen hundred. Um, keep the pressure on, and this means once again, if any uh, Democratic politicians start getting cold feet or chills, it's us. It's our time to put those feet to the fire. But other than that, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Back to the classic classic advice there. Medea, give us bring us home. Well, you know, it's so ironic because um, we in the more progressive movement, we believe that COVID is real and so we don't want to get out on the streets. Uh, and yet this is exactly the time to get out on the streets and not just leave it to the right uh, to take over our capitals, um, but to get out there and demand healthcare during a time of a pandemic. And so the next best thing was what Doug uh, uh, got into the uh, the mix about demand the vote. And I was on the side of yes, demand the vote. And I think we should be demanding a vote on Medicare for all over and over and over and just really go after uh, those who don't, uh, who vote against it. And, um, and go after Nancy Pelosi to demand that she put that to a vote. And then in terms of just the larger issue, I. Uh, I agree. I think the, the, the movement is in a good place right now and that we have strong anti-racist movements, strong environmental movements, strong uh, movements around, um, uh, around uh, $15 an hour and, and that kind of thing. And I want to just uh, close maybe with a good example of uh, a movement that brings these issues together, which is the Poor People's Campaign because they do bring in the, uh, the triple evils of poverty, racism, militarism, and they've added the climate into that. And they've developed the positive, which is a, a people's agenda and working very closely with the Progressive Caucus in Congress on a people's agenda. Uh, and it was just uh, brought tears to my eyes to hear Reverend Barber giving the homily to Joseph Biden the day after inauguration and talking about, we have to get off the war economy. So there are some good movements out there, DSA. I mean, we know a lot of these um, and uh, we just have to, to um, make them stronger and not uh, divide people by, do you um, still believe that there is hope for the Democratic Party or not? Um, I think it's really about the issues themselves and we have to have big tents on those issues. Thank you. Thank you, Medea, and uh, lots of enthusiasm for your comments in the in the chat box. Well deserved. There's a the utopian possibility of the chat box. You know the, the <laughs> unspoken possibilities and desires of people. Uh, and I think uh, Jacques Lacan would probably be a word for that. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 what is not spoken but is is somehow still said. Uh, yeah, I want to thank our, our three guests again and uh, for being here for Doug Henwood, Medea Benjamin, and Brian Snyder. Thank you very much for being the center of I think a really rich, fast moving but also deep diving conversation here on Shelter and Solidarity. We will be back in two weeks for our next show, which will focus on the challenges and the necessity of progressive and left media in this COVID capitalism crisis moment. We will have editors from Monthly Review, 
as well as a number of other progressive left local and national publications. And we hope you will join us for that. I mean, as it is to get the, in, in a way, metaphorically speaking, getting the chat box comments into the public consciousness and making it the new normal for, for discussion it has everything to do with the media outlets that are available and the kinds of communication ideas and information that can be disseminated across the society. So please come back in two weeks, Thursday night as usual, 7 p.m. Eastern for our third show of 2021, our 33rd show of Shelter and Solidarity. I wanna thank our co-sponsoring organizations, newest of which is the Liberty Tree Foundation, which came on board recently and we're really, really so glad to, glad to have you all involved. We also are sponsored by the journal Socialism and Democracy, by the Community Organizing Center Encuentro Cinco, by the independent publisher of Working Class Stories, Hardball Press. And we have uh, producers I need to thank, Linda Liu, Seren Mudliar, Kira Mudliar, Tim Sheard, Mark Soderstrom, and our newest production team member, Rachel Patton. Welcome aboard, Rachel. It's glad to have you. Uh, thank you to everyone for your contributions. And if you do want to hang out with the producers for a few moments after we stop recording and Zoom casting live, you're welcome to do so. We usually hang around and debrief. This is an all volunteer project and your support is much valued in whatever form you can offer it. Thank you all. And we'll hopefully see you in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay engaged and stay together. <laughs>